0: Maybe some of you heard this news story from a number of years ago. Um, There was an 11-year-old named Nick Smith who attended a charity hockey game in Fairbow, Minnesota. And while he was there, he won the raffle. And what that meant was that Nick was invited down onto the ice in intermission, and he was given the opportunity to shoot a puck 90 feet across the ice, and if he made the puck into the goal, um, he would win $50,000. Sounds like a pretty good raffle to be a part of. Well, here's the thing. So a puck is what? Maybe about three inches wide. And the slot in which he was supposed to hit it 90 feet was three and a half inches wide. So not a lot of room for error. And so Nick comes down onto the ice... 11-year-old wearing flip-flops, he takes the big old hockey stick, swings it back and follows through, and 90 feet that puck goes, and that three-inch puck makes it into the three-and-a-half-inch hole into the goal, and Nick Smith wins $50,000. And as you can expect, the crowd goes wild with an amazing, amazing thing. One of just an awesome day that Nick got to experience— Much better than a few weeks later, the day that he had to give all the money back. So when the intercom or the announcer announced for Nick Smith to come on down, you know where Nick Smith was? He was outside of the arena getting something out of his family's car, okay? But his dad, Nick's dad, heard the name, and sitting next to his dad was Nick's twin brother, Nate, And so his dad thinks, you know, no one will even know, Nate, you go down, you know, you try it. I mean, you're not going to win anyway. Well, sure enough, I already told the story. Nate hits the puck into the goal and goes home with a check made out to Nick Smith for $50,000. Now, when they they got home, this kind of shows you the type of people that they they are. It kind of ate at them a little bit. They felt really guilty about what happened, and so they ended up reporting that it wasn't Nick, it was Nate, and after having some sort of a uh, convening as to what to do with it, ultimately it was decided that they had to give the $50,000 back. The, the point of this little story that happened a few years ago is that identity matters, In the case of this hockey shot, it didn't matter what Nate Smith did. He wasn't Nick Smith, and so it didn't count. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our being in heaven someday, when it comes to our forgiveness, most of you in the room know that there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. And you probably know why we have this wood up here on stage, because it's in the shape of a cross. You probably heard that Jesus died on that cross. But let me just tell you this. It would not matter at all if Jesus or anyone died on a cross if they did not have the right identity. And that's what we're going to unpack today. We're going to dig a little bit deeper. We're going to, you know, recognize what Jesus has done, but recognize who he was and why it was only him who could do it and no one else. Only him who could be the one who would pay for our forgiveness and that it would really matter or really count. So we are in the Apostles' Creed, and if you're new, uh, the Apostles' Creed is a statement of belief that has been embraced by the Christian church and, in fact, recited by the Christian church for generations. And the reason is not because there's anything real special about the Apostles' Creed. The reason is because the Apostles' Creed is seen to be a very Good representation or summary of what the Bible clearly says about God and about what God has done. Today is our first week of two where we're unpacking what's called the second article or the second part of the Apostles' Creed. It's all about God the Son. And uh, as we kind of dig into it, I'm going to ask you to speak along with me the words of the Apostles' Creed. You'll find it here um, on the screen. Goes like this I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Well, as you can see, this article is all about Jesus. It may be something you didn't know. That there is very few, if any, reputable historians, even non-biblical, even secular historians, who would ever deny that Jesus of Nazareth lived 2,000 years ago. The evidence for Jesus' existence, for Jesus living 2,000 years ago, is just too overwhelming for any logical or objective person to deny. In fact, oftentimes in Starting Point, we'll go through some quotes of historians from the first century who did not believe that Jesus was the Savior, but who clearly wrote about Jesus existing. Maybe you've heard of one of them uh, named Josephus Ring the Bell at all. He didn't accept Jesus as Savior, but he acknowledged throughout his writing that Jesus lived and that people followed him. In fact, throughout the centuries, there is no other person in history that more people have had to come face to face with and make a decision about than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, here's the key, our first fill-in. That though people know he existed, a correct understanding of Jesus is the key to correct understanding of God. It's It's more than just recognizing that he existed. Who was he and what did he do? Even religions throughout the world all acknowledge Jesus as being a good guy, a great teacher. Uh, Let me unpack a few of them for you. Uh, Buddhists, they respect Jesus as a teacher. They acknowledge him as a, a good man who taught about love and forgiveness in a world that needs to hear about love and forgiveness. Hindus, they respect Jesus too. They really enjoy how virtuous Jesus was, that he taught about self-sacrifice and humility. And in fact, Jesus, Hindus would say, was so virtuous that he worked his way into being one of the gods. Did you know that the religion of Islam respects Jesus? They view Jesus as a prophet of God, kind of like Muhammad was, they would say. And in fact, in one of Islamic legends, it's said that as Muhammad went and sort of destroyed uh, symbols and idols of other gods, when he came to the statue of Jesus and Mary, he left it stand. Even Muslims respect Jesus. What do atheists do with Jesus? I think for most that I've had a chance to talk to or, or read about what they're thinking, um, they, they would see Jesus as some sort of a reformer along the lines of a Martin Luther King Jr. or an Abraham Lincoln or something like that. My point is, is, is that when you hear the name Jesus, everyone thinks something. Everyone feels something. It was no different 2,000 years ago when Jesus was here on earth. He had sort of collected a following. People all over Israel knew that he lived. They knew some of the things he had done. And as Jesus was getting towards the end of his ministry, he did what we're doing today. He gathered his disciples together, and he quizzed them about who people are saying that he is. One of Jesus' disciples who was there that day recorded this conversation in uh, the biography that he wrote. His name was Matthew. His biography that he wrote about Jesus was very creatively named Matthew. And uh, we turn there now. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? People are talking. Jesus knew that to be true. Disciples, what's the word about me? Verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist. That was uh, a man who came a few years before Jesus to sort of prepare people for the Savior to be coming through a, a message of repentance. Others say Elijah." That was an Old Testament prophet. Still others say that you're Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, or one of the other prophets. So what the disciples essentially are saying is what many other religions are saying today. You can't help but deny there's something special about Jesus. You can't help but, um, you know, I guess, accept that he had an amazing message that revolutionized a lot of different things. He was a great speaker. He did miracles. And what people were saying, well, I don't know who he is, but the best that I can come up with, is some sort of great prophet, reincarnated and come back to earth. Now, those are good questions. What do other people say about me, about Jesus? But there's a more important question. It's a question that Jesus gets really personal With the disciples. And he asks this Matthew 16, verse 15 What about you, though? Who do you say I am? Who do you believe Jesus is? There is no question. More important than you'll ever be asked or that you could ever ask someone than this question because our entire eternity revolves around the answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Now one of the disciples speaks up. For those of you who kind of know the personalities of the t- 12 disciples. You probably could guess who spoke first. His name was Peter. Verse 16, here's how Peter replies, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I just want to pause here for a moment and sort of unpack exactly what Peter is saying. He first calls Jesus the Messiah. That's a a word in the Greek that is said to be Christ, means the same thing. Both Messiah and Christ means the anointed one, the chosen one. And in those two languages, Christ or Messiah, could have been used for designating anyone that's been chosen. But all throughout the centuries, that word was specifically used to represent or to call out the one who had come promised by God the Father to save the world from sin. And so what Peter is saying in the first part of this is that I I believe, Peter, I believe that you are the one promised about in the Old Testament. Although later we're going to see in Peter's life, especially as Jesus is betrayed and crucified, Peter sort of show his sinfulness and even a little bit of his confusion, his faith was in there. We see a clear confession of Peter accepting Jesus as his Savior through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the next part, you are the son of the living God. Now, last week we spent a lot of time talking about how with God, we can call him dad. We can call him father. The creator of the universe who put 100 billion galaxies into the sky and has all power and all might. By faith, we can kind of crawl up on his lap, so to speak, and say, Dad, I want to talk to you. And he listens because he views us by faith as his children. We all, in a very real way, biblically, are called sons and daughters of God. This is not what Peter is saying here. He's saying something bigger. I, I, I highlighted the wrong the, but it should have been the son. Of the living God, you're not. You are not a son. Peter is saying you are the son. And in essence, what Peter is acknowledging is you're not just a prophet. You're not just a holy man. You're not just a teacher or a good leader or a reformer. You are God. And what does Jesus do with that answer? Well, he accepts it. Verse 17. Jesus replied, "Blessed are you." It's a good answer, Peter, because that's exactly who I am. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So here's an important question. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? What really makes up Jesus, whom we've come to worship and who we put our hope and trust in? Years later, there was a a pastor named Paul, and he didn't actually have a chance to talk with Jesus prior to his death and resurrection. But after Jesus rose from the dead, um, Jesus in the flesh spent some time with Paul. This is where Paul became a Christian. And he spent some time teaching Paul. And throughout Paul's letters, whether they be letters like Romans or Colossians or Galatians or Ephesians, we see Paul unpacking a lot of the deep truths that most likely Jesus shared with him during this time that they were together. One of the sections that Paul writes about is what it means that Jesus is called the Son of God. We we turn to Colossians chapter 1. Says this, Paul's writing, the Son is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God, who is spirit, looks like, the best way we can understand it is by looking at God in the flesh. Who is Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. He's God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is greater than creation because He wasn't created. In fact, he's the one who created things. It goes on, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you know what Peter was confessing in Matthew chapter 16? And and I share this because I want you to see that we don't just do the Apostles' Creed at Bethlehem or at other churches just mindlessly. What Peter is confessing is exactly the words of the first article. This part, I believe in Jesus Christ, next slide, his only son, our Lord. And when you are confessing, those words. When you're confessing and putting your faith in Jesus, here is also what you are believing and what we are teaching. It's our second fill in that Jesus is both true God and true man. Now, why? Why? You know, I'm guessing for many of you, this is something you've heard for many, many years. You you know it. For some of you, this is brand new and you're wondering, well, this is complicated. I thought it was just a guy who died and and rose again. Yes, but he he had to be true God and true man. Here's why. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, I accidentally broke a window in my neighbor's house. I think I shared this story once. And I was so nervous that the window was broken that I just feared when the dad came home um, and what he was going to do. And when he came home and I talked with him, he forgave me. And I didn't have to pay for the window. But he didn't just turn his back on it and pretend like, oh, no big deal. I'll just pretend like it wasn't broken, and we'll just move on. Because forgiveness sometimes has a cost. I didn't pay for it, but someone had to. Otherwise, it would still be broken. Who did? He paid for it. But payment still had to be had. God is a just God. That means he could not turn his back on sin when it happened and pretend like the window wasn't broken. To do that would be going against his own nature, his holy nature. So he says, you don't have to pay for it, but it still needs to be paid for. And the only right price to pay for our sins would not be a death. People die all the time. Actually, death is a punishment for sin, right? It would only be the death of someone who didn't deserve it. And in order for there to be a perfect substitute, we, who are all born in sin, could not be that substitute. It had to be a holy God who would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who would be born without sin, be our perfect substitute, die in our place, and rise again. And that's why this is so important if Jesus was just a man, I mean, he changed society. He taught about love and forgiveness. But if he was just a man, he would not have been the sacrifice that we needed. But when we confess that Jesus Christ is, our o- is our, his only son, our Lord, we are confessing a miracle. The miracle of God coming to earth. And I want you to understand how unlikely that is. Last week, we were in the middle of one of those quick, and maybe it was two weeks ago, those, those like 20-minute, 15-minute downpours that have been hitting Lakeville. Like it's just like buckets of rain and then it stops and stays cloudy, but just just sheets of rain. And while one of those was happening... I had an appointment that I needed to get to. So I couldn't wait for it to sort of slow down a little bit. I didn't have an umbrella. And so I made a dash for my car on, an, on the way to an appointment. And I ran down my driveway to get in the car. It's just raining buckets. And I'm getting wet, and I dropped something that I needed. Again, it's just raining buckets. I get to the car, put the rest in the car, because I couldn't pick it up with the other things in my hands. Go and get it. Run back to the car, it's still just downpouring. get in, about to get in my car, and I remember, this is the car that doesn't have a clicker for the garage door, and the garage door's open and no one's home, so I'm still getting downpoured on, and I get to the door and I'm click, putting the code in to close, it and I just like, ah, And that "uh frustration and groaning of anger <laughs> was meant just for me and the birds. The problem was that out of the left side of my eye, I noticed that our neighbor was out holding her little son as they were watching the nice rain from their porch as they were staying dry. And I still don't know how she felt about me or, you know, and that groan because it was an angry groan. You know, uh, he's a pastor and he args like that. I don't know. So I don't know if I have the guts to ask her. But it couldn't have been good, right? Here's here's what I want you to know. Have have you ever felt args when it comes to life? When it comes to just things not going your way? And a lot of times we're the problem. Like we have this perfect picture of the type of husband or wife that we're going to be. And we set out on the first day of our marriage with that in mind And then life happens and the week happens and you look at your day or your week and you're not the husband you wanted to be. It's like, ah, right? The groan of frustration. Or how about your your family? You know, you had this picture of this perfect little family. And and whether it's the kids not doing the things they should or because they're sinful too or whether it's looking back and seeing things in your kids that you don't like, but you know where it came from, right? It's, a, it's this groan of, I just can't get anything right. Or, or we set out on a new day, a new season, a new school year, and I'm going to be more patient and more loving and more forgiving and less stressed and less worried and more content. How long does that last? Usually... Not very long. And yes, by God's grace we get better at these things, but we are groaning every single day when it comes to not being the people we want to be. And God is standing there the entire time, like a neighbor on his porch, and he sees it all. But he doesn't roll his eyes at you or think less of you. Instead, he loves you and sent his son who happened to be both God and and man. And in a great amount of love, God came to earth and took on flesh. And here's why, fill in number three. God came to us because we could not come to him. Friends, it was the only way. You try to get into the good graces of God and fix the broken window on your own. Believe me, as you try to live up to the the spectrum of being perfect is I, the Lord, your God, and perfect. All that's going to happen is a bunch of groaning because you're not going to be able to do it. Do you, we don't need to live in the groans of our sin <clears throat> because God became flesh and forgave us. Here's what the second article says. Again, I believe in Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? Well, here's his identity. Remember, identity is is important. The the second article clearly states his identity. He is God's only son, our Lord. He's true God. Okay? It's important because we needed a perfect substitute who would rise from the dead. And he's also conceived by the Holy Spirit, still the God part, also born of the Virgin Mary. He also was true man. We needed that because God doesn't die. True God, true man. And in that perfect dichotomy of 100% God, 100% man, as man, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He allowed himself to be crucified. He died and was buried. God on his own could not and cannot die. He had to become human. And then, in his godliness, the Apostles' Creed says, he descended into hell. This is probably the biggest, uh, what I would call, confusion around the second article. I think most people, if you've never studied the second article, think that when we say that Jesus descended into hell, that he went to hell to pay for sin. It actually falls in this place in the Apostles' Creed because, biblically speaking, Jesus went to hell. In victory, to show the devil he had won. He had conquered the grave and you lost. In confirmation class, I talk about it as being his, his victory parade. You know, like the Vikings will someday have, right? The victory parade down downtown Minneapolis. This is what Jesus is doing in hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. This is our Savior. This is the Savior that we needed. And as Jesus ends this, confirmation, this conversation with Peter, here's what he says, verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter. His name had been Simon. He's changing his name to Peter, which means little rock. And on this big rock in the Greek that's how you see the difference in the two words, on this confession that you just made, that Jesus is, that I am Savior and Lord, I will build my church on that message and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And 2,000 years later, every good Christian church builds its message, its ministry, its hope. On that same confession found by Peter and in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Did you know that the first core value at Bethlehem is Jesus centered? We will always be a Jesus centered church. That is our primary core value. And the reason why we want it to be right there as number one is because it is easy sometimes for churches to be about the wrong things. Like, Purely about making the budget or purely about building buildings or purely about making me happy or serving me. Those are all important things when it comes to church, but that's not why we're here. That's not what we build a church on, like a a glee club to have a lot of fun and sing together. We are here, and we build our church on the message of salvation that could only be had through the perfect Savior, both Son, meaning man, and God. And so, when it comes to the guilt that we bear, when it comes to our wondering about the future, here's my application to you today. Number four fill in for today. Can you just let Jesus hold the weight of whatever it is you're carrying? I get to talk to people often who are in difficult spots. And the weight, they carry, is very different. Some is guilt over the past. Some is fear about the future. Some is discontentment about the present. But the thing that everyone has in common is when Jesus is both man and Lord, both Savior and Lord in our lives, we have someone to give that weight to. And so this week, I just encourage you in those moments when you feel the weight of sin heavy or the weight of life heavy and you feel like, ah! Yes, that's right. Thank you. We had someone in the first service, ah, as well. So, When those moments come, just remember, God has heard your yells, your groans, and he sent the perfect Savior to take care of it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for not only hearing the groans that we have, but for doing something about it in the greatest sacrifice that there ever was for God to become human, to die on the cross, but then to rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. Dear Lord, may that be our greatest joy and comfort. We pray all this in Jesus' name.